Industrial Light and Magic, LucasArts, Skywalker Sound, Lucasfilm Animation. This is Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z. Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the worlds of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm have been dreaming up for the past 40 years. I'm Jim Hill, and on behalf of my co-host Dan Zahir of Coffee with Kenobi fame, I just want to say thanks to all of you who reached out to say how much you enjoyed the first episode of Looking at Lucasfilm. I don't know about you, Dan, but I was honestly really surprised at all the nice things that people had to say about the podcast. It was really great. It was a wonderful piece of feedback that everyone gave, and I had a lot of people texting me and sending me messages and on Twitter, and in one guy in particular, whose name is Tim, will be very excited. Hi, Tim, that I'm mentioning his name on the show. But he texted me and he said, oh my gosh, you're the most famous person I know because you're on a show with Jim Hill. <laughs> and I said, well, there you go. <laughs> I was pretty excited oh. about it too, Tim. And it's been very fun. I've had a lot of people asking me, where can I find the show? So it's been very fun to let people know if they don't already know about the Disney Dish podcast and everything that's going on with Jim Hill Media. So we've had a lot of cross-pollination going on, which has been really nice. I agree. And given how much of the road you plowed with all of your previous shows about Lucasfilm, I'm kind of surprised that adding my voice to the mix somehow makes it special. But anyway. Peanut butter and jelly is what this is. Or sour cream and herring. Who knows? <laughs> anyway, hopefully we'll do as well with our second episode. Dan has got some great stories to share from his most recent trip to Hollywood, where you have some insight into how the Walt Disney Company is going to go about promoting Solo, who they're partnering with. Yes, they've got a lot of irons in the fire, and a lot of it is a bit more challenging because of what's been going on behind the scenes, but it's all going to be fine. And then, of course, you've got some great stuff to talk about with Episode 9, which starts shooting in July. The news we'll be talking about now broke just a few days ago, and it has to deal with who's handling the second unit of this new Star Wars movie. Sure, and second unit for people who are not necessarily aware of all the the cinephile speak that it goes on when it comes to making a film. The second unit is part of a production team which is responsible for all the extras, kind of the supplementary footage that you need in the movie, like establishing shots and stunts, inserts and cutaways. The second unit, I believe, is the unit that filmed the amazing truck sequence in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is my favorite scene in that entire movie. Wendy, of course, gets thrown through the front of the truck and attaches the whip to the grill and slides underneath and it's just fantastic but that was all second unit stuff oh absolutely and i remember before there was a raiders that that was the one one of the pieces of concept art that they used to sell the movie was indy on horseback riding up to the truck and getting sort of ready to leap off the horse to go on the truck this is Indiana Jones with a mustache because... Tom Selleck. There we go. But that's another story. We'll get to that the next time. Um, that's right. Anyway, J.J. Abrams is the one who's going to be riding her in the first unit, which, again, is the part of the Star Wars production team that shoots the scenes with the leading cast members, Daisy Ridley, John Baker, whereas Victoria Mahoney will be calling the shots on Episodes Nine, second unit. Which is a huge deal. I mean, she is the first woman to helm a Star Wars movie, and J.J. and Kathleen Kennedy personally selected her to take charge of the second unit. So that's a big deal, obviously, for many, many reasons. But one of them is the sheer physical size of this production. If you watched the Blu-ray with the director and the Jedi from The Last Jedi, 
when Ryan Johnson, of course, was showing us behind the scenes. It was like an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes of what goes into a Star Wars film. These things are huge. The budget is huge. The sets they build and rebuild and move and the locations. All the stuff that goes into it, plus stunt sequences, it's going to be a really challenging assignment. And she is a pro, so this is great news for Star Wars fans. Absolutely. And speaking of Episode Nine. Have you heard about this Princess Leia recasting petition? Oh boy, have I ever. Of all things, I was at Menards a few weeks ago trying to get some stuff, and all of a sudden my phone just started blowing up, and I got on our Coffee with Kenobi Twitter feed, and there was quite a scuttlebutt about this petition going around for General Organa, which is who you're talking about, I believe. Yeah, and I get this. I really, really get this. Meryl Streep, three-time Academy Award winner, but also, this is Meryl Streep, who appeared in Postcards from the Edge, which was based on Carrie Fisher's autobiographical novel from 1987. And I get the whole idea that she played Susan Vale, who was basically Carrie Fisher. So it's it's not that much of a jump to go from to her playing right. Leah. No, it, it adds up as far as that goes. And I guess there's a little bit of pedigree to that. It's very, very challenging, though, and I think there's a lot of things going on into this little proverbial pod. For one thing, Carrie Fisher is so incredibly iconic. She's so associated with Leia Organa that to see someone else as Leia Organa, I mean, all you need to do is look at fans online, some fans online, talking about Alden Ehrenreich and him being solo, because I think it's very, very hard for us, and sometimes for me as well. To remember that Han Solo isn't Harrison Ford, he's Han Solo. That's very, very hard to do. You've got over 40 years of comics and action figures and art, and of course the incredible films, there's that association there. Now you also throw in the fact that I think there's a bit of a a misnomer amongst people who are not necessarily ensconced in all film, not just Star Wars. Meryl Streep is an amazing, amazing actress. I mean, I'm not necessarily a Meryl Streep fan per se, but I know that she's incredibly talented. Even if you were a Knicks fan in the 90s, you knew Michael Jordan was great. You didn't have to like him, but didn't mean he was still great. And she's an amazing actress, but she is not Princess Leia. That's very hard. I mean, I would give it faith. I mean, Heath Ledger was a great Joker. Michael Keaton was a great Batman. If you have a great actor, you can sell this kind of stuff, but it's hard. And when you throw in the fact that Mark Hamill's publicly said, I don't like this idea. I mean, that's pretty hard to overcome. Oh, absolutely. And and Carrie passes away December 27, 2016. And as I understand it, the script for Episode 9 was already locked at that point. There's this interview that Kathleen Kennedy did with Vanity Fair back in May of last year. And she revealed, as part of this interview, that the then writer-director of Episode 7, Colin Trevorrow, had delivered a script to us in early December, so Carrie's death was a real shock and changed things quite dramatically now. Now, David Camp, the writer who did this interview of Vanity Fair with Kathleen, then goes on to ask, so General Leo was going to be a significant part of Episode 9? And Kennedy's response is really significant, yeah. And Camp throws a follow-up question at her real quick, and, and now that's going to be? And Kennedy had a one-word response. She said, rethought. And this is, again, where you have to have an excellent storyteller who is able to overcome major adversity. You can't replace Carrie Fisher. It's absolutely impossible. But Leia, at the end of The Last Jedi, is, of course, alive. And it's so ironic that the one actor, or the one character of the big three, 
that's alive in the story is actually deceased in real life because Hamill and Ford are, are very much with us. So they have a lot of rethinking to do, and it, it very much changes the arc. My hope is that, and Lucasfilm was pretty tight on this sort of stuff, so we may not see it for a long time, if at all, but I hope that we'll eventually get to see the plans for what would have happened with General Leia in Episode Nine. but they're not going to do something like they did with Rogue One, where Peter Cushing was replicated with uh, CG, and it was beautifully done. In fact, the first time I saw it, I thought, oh my gosh, they did it, and it looks really strong. And they had permission from Peter Cushing's family. Billy Lord has said that their family has given permission for Leia to be, or for Carrie Fisher, see, even I can't do it, for Carrie Fisher to be replicated in episode nine, but Lucasfilm said, we're not going to do this. I mean, let's be honest, that would just be way too much of a distraction. So this means, of course, that episode nine is going to have to be a Leia-free film in some way. Now, Jim, how would you feel if they mentioned Leia and she was still alive, but she was always like behind the scenes or somewhere off camera. Do you think that would be a disservice or do you think that would at least let the character live it's in It's interesting you say that it's a distraction because when they were shooting Gladiator and Oliver Reed died during that production, but they still needed Oliver Reed to be in the movie. And so they did CG work. They, at one point they brought in an animatronic. And I have to tell you that whenever I watch this movie, I'm not totally involved always a step removed because whenever Oliver Reed comes on the screen I'm like is that real is that the animatronic is that the actor there's people who feel that same way about the Fast and Furious 7 the whole notion that you're watching the movie and supposedly his brothers came in and did double work and that sort of thing but getting back to episode 9 now you're right they turned around and said okay this is now a Leia free film so Colin Trevorrow supposedly spends the first half of 2017 rewriting episode nine to reflect this unfortunate reality and when he couldn't come up with a script that worked lucasfilm then brings in jack thorne he's the guy who was the screenwriter of wonder to see if he could help whip the star wars story into shape when trevor and thorne came up short well that's when kennedy made the very difficult decision to bring back jj abrams to write and direct episode nine the fact that trevorrow is not going to be helming episode nine makes me so happy i i'm one of the few people on the planet that this despised Jurassic World. I thought it was awful. I thought that the characters were so cardboard that towards the end of the movie, I wanted the dinosaurs to eat the children so the movie would be over. So that's terrible, right? <laughs> he, he just doesn't, he doesn't seem to understand balancing CG and making characters. And, and we know that the prequels are, are very polarizing. I absolutely love the prequels. I will defend them every day of my life. But a lot of people do not like them for some of those reasons. So we don't want to have that in episode nine. All this is starting back in September of last year, and J.J. has gotten rid of all the drafts, start over fresh, which is, I think, a good idea, and then he's working with uh, Chris Terrio, I think that's his name, and that's the guy who wrote Argo, which is a fantastic film, and we know J.J. makes a terrific movie anyway, so I feel like we're on the right track. Certainly hope so, but... Did you like Jurassic World? I like watching Jurassic World when it's on, like, TNT, mm -hmm. where I can tune in for, like, five minutes and watch some effects and then continue to graze. I didn't see it when it was in theaters, and this was designed to be a movie. It wasn't designed to be a, oh, boy, look at the dinosaur destroy the visitor center. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't feel like I can have an informed opinion on that. I have been watching the ads for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which... They just dropped the final trailer today, and the movie that they'd previously been selling is not the movie they are now promoting. So it's like, 
that's not a good sign. No, no. Uh, well, anyway, getting back to episode nine. Supposedly, J.J. and Chris finished their screenplay for uh, the next Star Wars film this past February. At least that's what J.J. told Stephen Colbert when he was on The Late Show a few months back. And Which, again, brings us back to General Organo being recast and Meryl Streep now playing the part of Carrie Fisher once played. This is a challenge where we have to remind ourselves that there was a significant amount of time where if you said the words Sean Connery, mm-hmm. no one could budge because he was James Bond and no one could possibly be James Bond. And obviously there have been a number of actors cast as James Bond. There have been many more hits than there have been misses. And he's become a character, not an actor that personifies a particular fictional character. So it can be done. It's been done well with Batman as long as you don't have Arnold Schwarzenegger in the film. To some degrees, it's been done well with Spider-Man, but it's tricky. And then the most famous one, or not one of the most famous, I think James Bond is probably the most famous. But let's look at Harry Potter, which is, to me, those books, and I'm, I'm an English teacher, and I'm, ve- I'm very pretentious when it comes to reading, and I believe that these Harry Potter books are literature, absolutely 100%, and they mean something to people, just like Star Wars does. So when Richard mm-hmm. Harris died, and he was a perfect Dumbledore, that was recast, And the actor who replaced him, Michael Gambon, he was fine. But every time I saw him, all I could think was, you're not Richard Harris. You're an excellent actor. You're a good Dumbledore. But I guess there are some characters where it's just, it's hard. It's hard to do. But they didn't really have a choice, did they? No, they didn't. I mean, that's the thing. In fact, Richard's health was failing as they were working on the first film. In fact, Daniel Radcliffe tells these stories about being on the set with Richard and Daniel was a little precocious at this point. He had studied the script and learned both of their lines. And so when Richard would pause, Daniel would chime in, your line is. And it turns out it was actually helpful because Richard was kind of slipping at that point. But Hmm. they had actually talked about recasting for Chamber of Secrets. And he was like, no, I really enjoy being these movies and my grandchildren enjoy seeing me in them. So let's continue. But when he passed away in October of 2002... They were gearing up to start shooting in April of 2003, The Prisoner of Azkaban. And so it wasn't really an option. And supposedly Richard's family had suggested Richard's good friend was Peter O'Toole from My Favorite Year and Lawrence of Arabia. And they kind of hoped that they would honor their dad's wishes or at least honor their wishes for their dad and bring O'Toole in for the part. But as you said, that wasn't the case. They opted to go with Michael Gambon. I clearly don't talk about Harry Potter films as much as I do Star Wars ever, but Mm. I don't remember ever hearing someone complain. In fact, most people, at least my students, because we do study Harry Potter in our British literature classes for my seniors, most students, when they watch the first two Harry Potters, they say, they seem to think that's not my Dumbledore, not in a pejorative, more like I'm used to the guy that's in all of the movies. And I think that's interesting. And he did stay on all the way through 2008 when Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince was shot, too. When Chris Columbus, who was the director of the first two Potter movies, when he was putting together his dream cast, he was pitching the executives of Warner Brothers, who in turn would have to get J.K. Rowling to sign off on these things. Who he wanted for Hagrid... Who? was Robin Williams. Oh, wow. That would have been amazing. Yeah. Chris Columbus and Robin Williams had already worked together on Mrs. Doubtfire, and Chris was a little worried about this very English book and whether or not it would 
work worldwide. So he wanted to you know, like, give me one star, one, give me one American star. And but Rowling dug in her heels. It's like, look, this is a story that is set in Britain. And I want all of the actors to be from the UK. So that's that's how Robbie Coltrane ended up as the gamekeeper of Hogwarts. But but it's so funny you mentioned Sean Connery earlier because Chris Columbus's first choice for Dumbledore was Sean Connery. And isn't he Indiana Jones's dad? See, it, it all comes back to Sean Connery, <laughs> well, no. doesn't it? That's crazy. And you started to tell me earlier, and I'd love for you to tell the story here on the show, just how involved Sean Connery has been or almost been in a lot of these famous franchises. There was this period toward the end of the late 90s, early 2000, where Sean turned down, Peter Jackson approaches him to play Gandalf in Lord wow. of the Rings. Wow. And also, the Wachowski brothers go out go and say, hey, we have this part Morpheus in the Matrix movies. Would you be interested? And Sean turned that down as well. And Sean's after-the-fact explanation, once word got out that he passed in all three of these projects, was he got the original screenplays for all three of these and just did not know what to make of the scripts. He, he read them, and it, this is a direct quote. He said, I didn't get them. The film he opts to make instead is 2003's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which 20th Century Fox had hoped that this was going to launch a whole new film franchise for them. And it ends up underperforming seriously at the box office, so it stops at one. And if I'm remembering correctly, he played legendary... King Solomon Mine, the, the character from that, uh, Alan Quartermain. Sure. And then he retires from film, which really severely impacted Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And I know that George and Stephen, as if I have them on a first name basis with them, boy, do I wish, <laughs> they wanted them. But I guess it kind of morphed what Connery would have done and, and given that to John Hurt, who played Harold Oxley in the film. It was kind of a heartbreaker. The original take on kingdom of the crystal skull was it was supposed to be this multi-generational adventure with poor indiana having to deal with his newly discovered son mutt and his dad which as you said at that point was supposed to be huxley's story arc and connery supposedly at least reads the script for indiana jones for and then sends back word to lucasfilm that he liked it which is why sean would then not agree to appear in the movie because as he supposedly told a close friend, I, I like the script for Extraordinary Gentleman, and that turned out to be a bad movie. And oh. since I like what I've read of Indiana Jones 4, that's probably going to be a terrible movie, too. Oh, no. So he, at that point, felt like he could no longer trust his instincts when it came to what would be good fodder for a film and what wasn't. And, and then when you factor in his contempt for the people who were running the studios back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it's... Here's a direct quote, Dan. I swear to God. It's like, <laughs> I have no use for all of those idiots who are now making movies out in Hollywood. It's like, maybe it's a good thing that Sean retired, that maybe his days are better spent playing golf. Sure. And going to Wimbledon. There we go. Thank goodness, too, by the way, that he didn't have uh, Stan Lee's daughter running his career. At least Sean Connery actually got to have a choice. Yeah. That's awful. But, I mean, speaking of awful, I've never seen a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I haven't heard a lot of good things about it. I know the graphic novel. That is based on, is it Neil Gaiman? I can't remember. I want to say Alan Moore. I do know that in Hollywood, of course, they're just, I once had a professor tell me, and there's a, there's a lot of popular literary theory on this, that there's only really like seven stories in the history of <laughs> culture 
So there are a lot of stories that are recycled, and often there are reboots, and I've heard that League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is possibly getting a reboot as well. There was that rumor making the rounds back in 2015. The studio that has the film rights to this series of graphic novels is 20th Century Fox, which is why the understanding of the Walt Disney Company is in the middle of its $54 billion acquisition of a large portion of Fox's television and motion picture production operations. I would have to say this is still on hold till at least 2019, and then it'll be up to Disney, which will then be collaborating with the folks at Fox, deciding what gets made when. And I could see that as a TV show or like something on Netflix. And the characters, the premise for the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is that there are a number of literary characters in this that are heroes, including Tom Sawyer, by the way. And I did my graduate thesis on Twain and how I used Twain in the, in the high school classroom. So anything Mark Twain related just makes me very happy. But it's very, very tricky. So it's a tricky franchise. But, of course, talking about Disney and then Harry Potter, mm-hmm. you know, you're the one who actually told me the first time. I believe it was the first time you were ever on Coffee with Kenobi a few years ago. You had told me that the people who would help create the Wizarding World are the ones who are going to work on Galaxy's Edge or are working on Galaxy's Edge. And doesn't it make you kind of wonder, and I'm sure you have, that if not for the success of what Universal did with Harry Potter, if Star Wars Galaxy's Edge would have even come to fruition? If you look at the Harry Potter film series, the eight movies made from the original seven books, not to mention the Fantastic Beast series, which we were just talking about uh, Peter Jackson. So remember, back when Warner Brothers initially announced Fantastic Beasts, it was a first a standalone film, then it was a trilogy, and now it's five? So it's The Hobbit playbook. Did I say two movies? I meant three. That's kind of what George used to do with the Star Wars stories back in the day, too. This is true. Now, I remember when Empire was coming out, that he flat out said nine movies. And then as the prequels were coming to a close and people were asking about the other trilogy, he said, no, 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 it's only six. Do you remember it that yeah, way? I, or? I know exactly. This is very often discussed. or Not know so much anymore, but it definitely was, especially in the mid-90s. There was always sort of a, something in the zeitgeist that said there are nine Star Wars ideas. And I think early, early on, he had said that he wanted to he had this idea for these nine stories. And then as it went along, it became, no, I'm only going to do three, and I'm only going to... And then after, a while after Return of the Jedi came out in 83, they had re-released the movies on VHS, of course, a number of times, and I have every single copy of them. And mm-hmm. he did a, an interview series with Leonard Malton, and he had said, I'm going to make the prequels. It's going to be about Anakin Skywalker falling to the dark side of the Force. And everyone went berserk. Everyone went so excited. And then he came out and said, well, no, there really actually was never going to be a 7, 8, and 9. So it just never really was a thing. And then people would always talk about how they were, oh, no, there's a bunch of books that talk about this, and Boba Fett is a Jedi, and blah, blah, blah. And that was all nonsense. It was all rumor and just sort of fan hyperbole and wishful thinking. And so now the 7, 8, and 9, he did have some ideas for 7, 8, and 9, but they were not really acknowledged or used at all for the, the movies we actually have. I suppose that's interesting way to wonder what would that have been like, but I've been very happy with seven and eight. So that that's kind of where that whole there's nine films idea came from. Well, now speaking of stories continuing like seven, eight, nine, with your kids being into Harry Potter as they are, mm-hmm. they have to have been talking about the cursed child, the thing that's going to be opening on Broadway and like 
a couple of weeks. Isn't there a book version out of the script for that play? Or There was, and I actually got it from the library, and mm. I just couldn't get into it, which is surprising because I devoured those books when they came out. And mm. I've never heard any of my students, Jim, now that I think about it, not a single person has ever brought it up. I, I mean, I know it's about Harry when he's older, but that's really kind of all I know. But is it? are they going to make a movie of that thing, too? Well, funny you say that. The Broadway version is opening, again, as I said, April 22nd, and two-part play. But the original production opened in London the summer of 2016. I get friends at the studio. I get friends at Warner's. And so they're the ones who, you know, chatting with a friend, they say, oh, by the way, we just went out and bought all of the rights to the domain names for anything movie-related for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. So, so Warner Brothers very clearly intends to make a Cursed Child movie. Now, interesting parallel between Star Wars and, and Harry Potter in, in much the same way that George Lucas reportedly reached out to Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, and Harrison Ford prior to selling Lucasfilm to Disney. Supposedly, George wanted to just make sure these guys would be on board because one of the things he mentioned to Disney is, by the way, I have some script ideas for the next three movies and we'd bring back the original actors and that sort of thing. But here's the interesting thing, that supposedly as part of the lead up to Cursed Child opening in London, Warner Brothers very discreetly reaches out to Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, Rupert Gint. And so I get this information from my friend in the studio, and I forget who I was telling about this, but it it blows up on the internet. And then in (laughs) one of the weirdest moments of my life, I am suddenly involved in a Twitter exchange with J.K. Rowling. And, And look, just like you, I love the Harry Potter books. I do believe they're literature, but... I just admire the sheer balls of J.K. Rowling, where you're reading Goblet of Fire, and you get to that scene in the infirmary, and Dumbledore is appealing to Fudge and says, look, he's back. We have to do something. And Fudge just refuses to accept it. He backs out of the room. He leaves the Gringotts in the bed for Harry. It's like, no, he's not back. And Dumbledore turns everybody around the bed and basically says, well, I guess it's up to us. At that point, he actually tells Sirius to reveal himself to Snape. I'm reading it, and so I realize, are you kidding me? We are the last 30 pages of the fourth book, and everything up to this point is prologue? The story starts now? That's a storyteller. That's right. I love what this woman does. So to suddenly be called out on Twitter by the woman herself, the detective, we are not doing a film trilogy based on The Cursed Child. And so I didn't respond. I don't want to take on J.K. Rowling. Oh, you didn't respond? Well, no. Oh, it would be kind of the equivalent of correcting God, you know, just sort of like or Oprah, yes. No, but yeah, well, either way. So what <laughs> ends up happening is I, I call my friend at the studio, go, "Hey, what's going on?" He said, "Oh, geez, I'm sorry." That's great. That's something for your resume. The fact that you, you actually got a tweet from her, I think that's amazing. What I said that upset her is that I said that they wanted to make a cursed child trilogy. Now, as it turns out. She's perfectly fine with the idea of making a cursed check two films because there are two plays. Mm-hmm. But Warner Brothers, on the other hand, when they look at the cost of bringing back Daniel Radcliffe, bringing back Emma, bringing, you know, recreating all these places and settings and that sort of thing, and it just sort of like, this is going to be hugely expensive and it's a long play. So can we break it into three pieces? And, and she's already pushing back. No. Yeah, if we learned anything from another famous mythology from Tolkien, 
The Hobbit, that book is wonderful. It's, it's amazing. And they stretched that thing into three books, and, and that certainly was not well-received. And mm. perhaps that might be something that's in her mind. She's very possessive of her material, and she should be. As she should be. I honestly have no problem with her saying that but it was just again it was a weird moment you really haven't lived you've been hung out to dry by jk rowling i really felt like i was flying solo at that moment and speaking <laughs> of solo really bad segue here folks i apologize you flew out to hollywood and you went to this solo promotional event and i gotta hear about this so sure. but this is denny's denny's yes i'd say about a couple weeks before i got the invitation Lucasfilm had, had released that they were who was partnering with them to promote Solo. And mm-hmm. Denny's was at the top of the list. And I thought, wow, it's not even something I'd really thought about. I hadn't been to a Denny's since college. And that's, you know, that was really a while ago. So mm-hmm. I got the invite and we they flew us out to Hollywood, which was amazing. And got to do a little bit of other Star Wars sightseeing, which we can talk about as well. But mm-hmm. ultimately, we were to go to the El Capitan Theater, which, of course, you were very familiar with. Oh, yeah. And they brought us in. And there were probably, I don't know, about between 35 and 50 influencers, Mm -hmm. reporters, things of that nature. And the CEO of Denny's came out and he talked about the fact that they are partnering with Lucasfilm and they wanted to find that perfect project and Solo was the one. And it was all about basically there was three aspects of this, maybe four. One is the commercial that debuted, which if you've seen, is tremendous. Mm -hmm. Neil Scanlon. I actually got to interview him in London and on in Pinewood Studios, which is my favorite sentence I've ever gotten to say in my life. <laughs> he has created a lot of these characters. He'll create BB-8. Mm-hmm. He'll create the puppet of Yoda from the original mold for The Last Jedi. He helped work on these commercials and, and make these creatures. And then they took the scenes from the upcoming solo film, and they replicated the place where they're going to place a Bach, where Han is eventually going to win the Falcon from Lando Calrissian. So they showed us that. It was about a minute long, and it was really, really fantastic. But that was just sort of the, the first part. They have a brand new menu. Actually, they gave us an, a really nice swag bag. And one of the things they gave us was a Denny's menu, which I'm looking at right now. So it's awesome. I can tell you everything you need to know about the recipes and the food, which I know we're going to talk about in a little bit. So there's that. It's, by, it's called No Kid Hungry, and it's something that they're doing where they're going to make sure that everything that you buy in there that's related to these cards, these trading cards that actually Toss worked on, they're going to donate that to No Kid Hungry. And they had told us, that was very, you know, you're a parent too. They said one in six children doesn't able to find a meal every morning. And that is stunning to me. Apparently it's one in five in California. So they're working with Tops and they're making these 12 different trading cards of the different characters from Solo and that's where we found out about the names of a lot of characters like Therm Scissor Punch, who's been very, very popular for whatever reason. I think it's probably the name. And you got to see all these things, and they gave us all in the swag bag. They gave us some cards. And like I said, I'm pretty happy because I actually ended up going to Denny's last week, mm-hmm. and I bought probably 15 decks of cards, and I have the entire set of 12, so I'm pretty psyched about that. But she talked. The lady who's in charge of No Kid Hungry talked about it as well. And then they lifted the curtain of the mm-hmm. El Capitan Theater, and we were able to go on stage, and they had a Denny's diner basically set up. They had tables everywhere and tablecloths and waiters, and everything was set up, and they fed all of us these strawberry pancakes that are solo-themed. Mm-hmm. And so we all tried that, and it was really, really, it was great. It was really quite an experience. It was just about an hour, maybe a little over an hour, and they also debuted a brand-new Denny's Coffee, which, of course, being coffee with Kenobi, when mm-hmm. the CEO of Denny's saw my name tag and said coffee, he's kind of, oh, oh, I need to talk to you later. And we did. <laughs> it was great. It was, it was oh. a lot of fun. 
I did Thanks. some stuff in Glendale, too, which we can talk about in a little bit as well. Really? Wow. Yes. Okay. And before we get off the, the topic of Denny's, though, I have to say that my daughter went out this past weekend. She, she's out in Southern California and went to the Denny's, got the cards, but she was talking about these pancakes you mentioned. And what's the deal with the Pop Rocks? <laughs> okay. So this is what they are. They're called co-reactor pancakes. Mm-hmm. And it's two pancakes, and they put fresh strawberries on it and strawberry sauce and whipped cream. Mm-hmm. And then they give you Crystal Crunch Rocks. That's what they're naming it. It's the Pop Rocks that we know from okay. our kids. Mm-hmm. And then they give you a warm citrus sauce. And what the CEO told us, he said you need to pour the citrus on first, mm-hmm. and then you pour on the Pop Rocks. And then you do, and if you looked at our Coffee with Kenobi Instagram page, you saw us testing this out. It sounds like in that room is like a cacophony of Rice Krispies because you heard it all over the place. It really, really worked. If you like Pop Rocks, it's definitely the thing for you. But they definitely went all out with this thing. Wow. Talk to me. What else did you do in Glendale? Well, one of the things I did the night before is I went to the, the Scum and Villainy Cantina, which is mm-hmm. on Hollywood. Oh, no. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it, was, it was cool. This is something that Lucasfilm is not sanctioned. They're not going to sanction mm-hmm. a bar because basically it really is just a bar with really cool cantina looking furniture. Mm-hmm. But I'd always wanted to try it out. And you go in there and I, when I walked in, I didn't hear the, the modal notes playing the cantina song. I heard Asia singing Toto, which that was kind of interesting, not very Star Wars-y. Okay. But they have it all decked out like the cantina, the couches, and the furniture and the walls, and it was beautifully, exquisitely done. That was great. But Glendale, I, I went to Glendale right before I got on my plane so I could do the, the Star Wars Secrets of the Empire, the virtual reality thing. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness, Jim. It was, it's one of the most amazing things I've ever done in my life, Star Wars or otherwise. It's just so realistic, and then I won't give away the ending, but it's on Mustafar, and if you know your Star Wars, you mm-hmm. know that's a problem. It's great. Absolutely great. Now, when did that open? Because I've actually been following this. I mean, it's not a coincidence that the Secret of the Empire Void setup opened in the Glendale Galleria. Because if you know your Disney history, that's where the Disney store started in 1987. And it's when the company Mm. is launching something. They deliberately set one up there. So it's really close for the guys at Imagineering and the guys at the studio to get at. So... This is a big deal that it was set up there. It was fairly new. I mean, I'd just been there two weekends ago. It was Easter weekend that I was Mm -hmm. there, for those of you listening. And I believe it was just a a few weeks before that. It's very, very new. I I learned about it because I saw Matt Martin on Twitter, who's on the Lucasfilm Creative Executive, or Story Group, Mm -hmm. as some people call it. He had mentioned that Glendale had just gotten the void. And I remembered that when I got the invite to Hollywood. And I thought, oh, I've got a double dip here. And I'm glad I did. Yeah, I mean, all right, I'm looking here that that there's a story as of March 19th that had just opened so at the Glendale Galleria. So you literally just squeaked in there. I mean, it hadn't hadn't been open. Wow. The force was with me, I guess. (laughs) Well, no, this is, and again, quite seriously, we should probably save this for for another show, but this is supposedly, the experience of Mustafar is the first supposedly of many. In fact, there are so many people at Disney right now, by extension Lucasfilm. Do you remember Disney Quest? Oh, I love Disney Quest. I even went to it in Chicago, too. Oh, jeez. Okay. Then you understand that at one point, Disney planned on building 30 of those worldwide? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, they got the one in, obviously, the, the Mothership and Walt Disney World up. They opened the one in Chicago. They got so far as to start... 
digging the foundation for the one they were going to build in Philadelphia when just the financials fell apart and Disney backed away from the idea. But honestly, there were people within the company now who, again, let's not spoil it for people, the, the, the setup, mm-hmm. but this is so much more practical so that much more easy to adapt to new experiences more to the point the physical plan of this is so much easier to set up i mean other than of course the the thousands upon thousands of dollars of computer power that have to power the imagery it appeals to four of your five senses and i guess it would be taste too if you end up licking the wall for whatever reason it's definitely it's amazing it's amazing okay anybody who's had that many pop rocks though recently i I wouldn't necessarily trust your did but all right we'll tell you what why don't we save that and more in-depth dive on your visit to the Secrets of the Empire and what the void was for our next show? But the combination of the villainy bar, which that's a pop-up, isn't it? I mean, just literally, it's not open all the time. It only open a couple of nights here and there? Or? I believe so. And it's it's been around for maybe nine months or so. And a lot of Kevin Smith does a podcast there. A lot of uh, my Star Wars podcasting brethren were out there as well. It's literally just sort of there. Like, you you could miss it if you weren't really paying attention. It's just very much blended in. It's probably about mm, half a mile from the El Capitan Theater. Oh, you are killing me. Okay, well, on a soon-do-upcome Looking at Lagusum, we'll definitely take a look at this. For now, for myself and Dan, thanks for listening, and hope to see you folks next time. Thank you for listening to Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z, one of many great podcasts on the Jim Hill Media Network.